0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series in First Timothy called Living the Truth with a message titled, Successful Pastoral Ministry. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4, 11 to 16 as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: I found a number of websites that explained how one could determine whether one is a successful surgeon. You know, a great deal that has to do with, you know, first-class outcomes. One website said that you might be a mediocre surgeon and still have excellent outcomes, but that's only because you choose only to operate on the easy cases. But an excellent surgeon is one who has ideal outcomes, taking into account the difficulty of the surgery. You know, I think if we think about it, we can almost guess what constitutes a great surgeon. We might also have a mental image of what constitutes an excellent plumber, an excellent auto mechanic, or an excellent teacher. But and Here's the Rub, a great many people have no idea as to what constitutes an excellent pastor or a Christian leader. And We've already seen that there are a host of different answers people give to that question. Indeed, I tried to Google what makes a successful pastor, and I was not amazed at all by the variety of answers. The answers on the internet seem to reflect the various answers that people give. And that's the problem that many pastors face. How do I know if I'm doing a good job? Am I succeeding or am I failing? Does the size of my church tell me how I'm doing? Well, it might. You know, I found one website that said that every pastor should be able to say four things about what they do. One, they're having a gospel conversation with someone every day. Two, they're praying over a challenge they know is coming. Three, they make all the phone calls that they've been putting off. And four, they learn something new, yeah, every single day. Well, if you're doing those four things and people are still leaving your church, are you successful? Well, probably not. But good pastors, like Winston Churchill once said, never, never give up, never surrender to defeat. But I've seen other lists, which include the enthusiasm of a pastor, their ability to learn, their gentle spirit. I mean, all good attributes. And still other lists talk about, you know, whether the successful pastor surrounds himself with gifted and talented people and is not intimidated when someone does something better than he's doing. And still another said an essential ingredient is to be a fun person to be around. And oh my, the list just goes on and on. See, unlike other professions, a great many pastors struggle to know if they're good enough to do what they do. And even worse, they have no way of judging whether they're good enough. And that's a tragedy, and it's a recipe for a lack of fulfillment and joy. Well, 1 Timothy 4, 11 to 16, I think, is a tonic to that kind of thinking. So let's have a look at what it says. Let's begin by reading the entire passage. And after that, let's take note of what we see. So these are Paul's instructions to Timothy. Command and teach these things. persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Well, you might notice at the outset that Paul gives Timothy ways of measuring constructive ministry by inviting Timothy to first pay attention to his public life, and then second pay attention to his personal private life. So when it comes to his public life, well, Paul mentions three important matters, and when it comes to the private life, He's going to mention two more matters. So let's start with a public ministry of the pastor. Three points. Number one, it's found in verse 11. Command and teach these things. Now, if you've been following me through this series, you will know what things Paul has in mind. You know, Paul's been speaking about false teachers and their errors and the confusion and division that has resulted by letting these teachers continue to have access to the congregation. Timothy is to take the false teachers out of ministry and then explain to the congregation in an understandable and in a practical way why these things are errors. He's to insist on sound doctrine and also to graciously, gently, and yet with clear teaching show what's true and what's false. And what's interesting about this command in verse 11 is that Paul gives it in the present tense. See, quite often the present tense in the Greek language is an ongoing present. The idea behind it is that the teaching, sound doctrine, and refuting errors is the ongoing task of every faithful and successful pastor. You know, over my years of pastoral ministry, I've noticed how often new teachings do come up, or sometimes it really is just a very old error, but it's being dressed up in contemporary clothing so that it sounds to those who don't know like something new and exciting. But since we never know how often error comes up, we might wonder how a pastor or a preacher or a Christian leader can anticipate all the false teachings that will come up during his ministry. And the answer is that good teachers are deeply conversant with the essentials of the Christian faith. They understand historic Christian truths. They know the doctrines of the nature of scripture, the attributes of God, his essential nature, They understand what the scripture has to teach about what it means to be human, both that we're in the image of God and that at the same time we've fallen from grace, we've inherited Adamic sin, we also sin willfully, we've fallen short of the glory of God. Good pastors understand and can explain the identity of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. They can articulate the gospel, They understand regeneration, conversion, justification by faith, so forth. They know the doctrines of the church, the doctrine of last things, as well as they can explain our hope, whether we face life or whether we face death. See, having studied the Bible well, they're able to articulate the very truths upon which everything stands. And false teaching always denies some essential truth. Know the truth well, be capable of showing where the essentials of scripture lie. Be able to show why this stuff is essential to both your faith and every practical area of your life. And you should be able to do what verse 11 says, command and teach these things. Now, number two, it's found in verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. You know, in this verse, Paul is commanding Timothy that he is to maintain the respect of his people. And Timothy's danger is that he's young. And there's no doubt that some of the false teachers Timothy would have needed to take on would have been older than he was, and it was a natural tendency, you know, in young men to be differential to the older, simply because they're older. And people often ask just, you know, how old Timothy was at this time, and I don't think he was in his twenties. I mean, let me tell you why I think that. Timothy was chosen to be Paul's traveling companion and his helper during Paul's second missionary journey. And we read about that in Acts 16, one two, where it says, Paul came also to Derbe and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well-spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Now, if he's well-spoken of the brothers in two churches, we have to assume that he's already accomplished something. He's not a child. So at the very least, we have to imagine he's either in his early or mid-twenties. And for argument's sake, let's just say he's 22 years old. Now then, the year of the event that we've just read would have been about AD 50. Let's then assume that the time of Paul's writing of First Timothy, well, it's now AD 63. It's a full 13 years later. And so just for argument's sake, we might say he is, at the time of this writing, let's say he's a 35-year-old man. Let's also assume that some of the false teachers are in their 50s. And then I think we get a proper picture of the scenario. No, Timothy is not a boy. He's not a boy taking on men. He's a young man in his mid-30s or perhaps even 40, taking on men older than he. Now, in every society, the concept of youth is a relative term. But there's something else here. In the next chapter of our book, 1 Timothy 5, verse 1, we read, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. So Paul's not telling Timothy to run off and throw around his authority. He's to be gentle, but he is at the same time never to doubt that God has called him to be the leader. He is to think of himself in that fashion, and on the basis of that, he is to project a certain sense of confidence. But that confidence must never lead to cockiness, arrogance, and Paul stresses that. Instead of demanding that people fall in line, simply set an example as to what the life of godliness looks like. And that's the key. Good leaders don't have to run around reminding people, look, I'm the leader. But neither are they filled with self-doubt and self-depreciating attitudes. They're always aware that people are watching, they're paying attention. And a good pastor sets the tone as to what Christian behavior looks like. And so Paul lists a number of attributes he wants to see in Timothy. Things like his speech, his conduct, his love, his faith. He wants him to display to others what he is. He's a man of holiness. Be that kind of a man, says Paul, and embrace the calling you have. Make no excuses for it. You're gonna find people will embrace you as their pastor.
0: For many, the most misunderstood truths of the Bible revolve around the reality of heaven and hell. Misshapen by popular culture and misinformation, many Christians fail to have a true understanding of eternity. In response, Dr. John Newfeld and Back to the Bible Canada present a new book, Heaven and Hell. As we believe the truth about eternity is so critical, for the month of November only, this important book is now available for free as our gift. Bruce Ware, Professor of Christian Theology at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary wrote about the book, it is arguable that nothing in this life now matters more than knowing what happens then. Although this book is relatively short, it is packed. Readers will find excellent biblical exposition and incisive analysis that will inform their minds and inflame their hearts. To request your copy of Heaven and Hell today or to send a gift to support the Bible teaching ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: We've been looking at three external or public marks of the successful pastor. First, he is to be clear about the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. Second, he's to conduct himself in such a way that gives his congregation confidence that they can trust him as their leader. And now third, we'll find it in verse 13. He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Now, there's something here that's not noticeable in our English Bible, but in the original, in the Greek, the three terms, public reading of Scripture, exhortation, and teaching, all three of them have the definite article before them. That would seem to mean that the three are public functions. And so it seems to me that when Paul wants Timothy to excel, to be successful, he wants him to carry out a balanced ministry of teaching scripture. So let's look at each one in turn. Timothy is to publicly read scripture. And that would seem to mean that Timothy has selected portions of scripture that are to be read publicly while the congregation is listening. Now, whether or not Timothy personally does this, or he has designated various people to do it. That's really not the issue. The issue is that the congregation is to have the experience of listening as the Scripture is being read. That is, they don't simply hear one verse quoted over here and then another one over there. Rather, they are to become quiet and listen as an entire passage is being read, verse by line, hearing God's Word together and marveling that God is speaking. See I know some churches that have made a practice after the word is read publicly for the reader to say after he or she has finished reading this is the word of God and in response the congregation says thanks be to God. So in this way the congregation gets used to simply hearing God speak without comment being made and marveling that God is speaking. Now the second portion of Timothy's Bible ministry is that he has to be involved in using the scripture probably the one being read now, to exhortation. And the word here, exhortation, means encouragement. See, most likely, Paul means that Timothy is to so explain the text in such a way that people are encouraged to apply it to their lives. And the focus here is that when the scripture that was read is taught, people don't come away with a history lesson or an abstract theological enterprise to engage the intellect. Rather, they're supposed to understand what God wants them to do, or to believe, or to hope in, or to rejoice over. Timothy is to teach in such a way that people actually know what to do about the text. And then finally, in his handling of the word, Timothy is to teach. Now, explain the text. You know, in our term, we might say, show it in context. Help people to understand, you know, the historic background. Help them to know how to handle the text in such a way that as they watch you teach it, you know, they can say, hey, I'm beginning to understand how to do this. Now, when Paul gives Timothy these three instructions about successful ministry, we might notice that he's not saying that these three items are the sum total of everything that makes a successful pastor. But we can say with a good bit of confidence, without these three things, there are no successful pastors. Okay, you remember that when I started, I said that, that Paul is interested both in the pastor's public ministry, but also in his private life. And it is this, that successful ministry is about a private life, which makes the ministry different than any other profession. So let me get back to my earlier comments about you know a successful surgeon. See, I think we would all agree that one can have a highly effective and successful surgeon who is a disaster in his or her own private life. That does happen. The same is true of the successful, you know, plumber lawyer, police officer or engineer. It happens all the time. But there's no such thing as a successful pastor whose private life is a disaster. Oh, look, I, I don't mean that you can't be a successful pastor even while people are charging you with secret sins. You know, if that were the case, then even Jesus wouldn't stand. Remember, Jesus was without sin, and yet he was constantly being charged with sin. But what Paul is after here is that the personal life of the pastor is in order. And in this regard, Paul mentions two things. And the first, it's found in verses 14 and 15. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. And the Greek word for gift is the word charismata. It means a gift or a bestowal of the Holy Spirit given apart from anything we've done or deserve. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says there are diversity of gifts, yet there is but one Holy Spirit who gives them. And I think that must mean that every pastor, just like every other person, has a unique set of gifts that are going to vary from the next person. And here, I don't think that Paul's referring specifically to the gifts of teaching and preaching. I think Paul's already assuming that Christian leaders have that gift. But that's not the only gift they have. Timothy, along with every other pastor, will also have other gifts. Some have a gift of helps, and some of mercy, and some have gifts of administration. I've known some pastors who are exceptional in their ability to administrate. And I've known others who couldn't administrate themselves out of a wet paper bag, as they say. You know, other pastors might have a special endowment given by the Spirit in which they minister to the poor. Still others are gifted in music, the writing of worship music. Martin Luther was just such an example. You know, it would appear that when Timothy was ordained, the council of elders laid their hands on him, and it must have been that some of them had a prophetic word around some specific gift or gifts that Timothy had. And it must have been tempting for Timothy to abandon those gifts and forsake everything for the teaching ministry. See, Paul tells him, don't forget what the Holy Spirit has uniquely done in you. And I think, although I can't prove it here, but that Paul is telling Timothy not to allow his life to simply be conformed to the expectation of others that are looking at him. You know, allow for the individual uniqueness that the Holy Spirit has created in you to remain. Indeed, Paul is telling Timothy, stop neglecting the gift you have. Practice the gift. Immerse yourself in it. And as you do, let others see your progress so that they might be emboldened to make progress in the gifts that they've been given. See, I have no doubt, even though I'm speaking about Timothy's more private progress, that is, coming to terms with his gifts... You know, it was a discipline Paul expected in Timothy. Paul wanted Timothy not to neglect this spiritual duty. Don't become lazy in your gifts. Practice them. Don't ever give up in them. And then Paul has a second thing to say about Timothy's personal life, and it's found in verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. See, I love that part of verse 16. Keeping a close watch means remember at all times this will be a focus of your life, and it consists of two things. Watch yourself, watch your teaching. You know, it's so easy for a minister to neglect his self-watch. Perhaps private Bible reading and prayer is neglected. After all, no one sees. And then, of course, there are the secret sins of the flesh that take hold. Greed, pride, sensuality, exaggeration and lying, inner feelings of anger that keep bubbling up. A developing love for money, or a love for the praise of men, gossip. Well, there are a whole list of unwholesome attitudes. You know, I know some pastors who will have close, trusted friends whom they give permission to speak into their lives when they see something that's displeasing to Christ. And I know others who have some objective markers they look for. But one thing sure, it's irresponsible for a minister to preach and teach and not practice what they preach. See, years ago, I heard of a pastor who had committed adultery. His wife had just heard about it, and it seemed like their marriage was hanging by a thread. And the next day, that is the next day after his wife had discovered the adultery, the pastor, the husband, was called upon to officiate at a marriage ceremony. And in his address to the couple, the pastor spoke about the importance of fidelity to each other in the course of a lifetime. Indeed, he spoke with conviction. And after it was all said and done on their way home, The pastor's wife, still stunned by the revelations, asked her husband, how can you talk that way, the way you did today, when clearly you don't believe it? And as far as I know, and this is a true story, he said to her, I'm a professional. (laughs) Oh, the deceit that comes with such a statement. Watch yourself, says Paul. And then he adds, watch also what you teach. I'm always reminding myself of this. I will be held accountable for every word that I have said in public teaching. And then Paul adds, do those two things and you will save yourself and your hearers. Yet do this and many people will come to Christ. But understand, it's not only for their sake, it's also for yours, Timothy. Indeed, hell is filled with ministers. If you're a pastor, don't attempt to reach others and lose your own soul. Be
0: a successful pastor. John, wow. That's all I can say. That last statement you made, that hell is filled with ministers. Can you help explain that a little bit more?
1: Well, yes. I. You know, um, It shouldn't surprise us because the danger of the minister, when the minister begins to deny the Word of God and no longer has a genuine faith, not only does he harm his own soul, he's going to be counted or accountable for all the people that he led astray through his ministry. So... It's a terrible thing. So, how much better it would be for the unbeliever to stay away
0: from ministry? Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series Living the Truth right here on Back to the Bible Canada, and Bible Teaching You Can Trust. Momentum continues to pick up as friends look to travel with us on our 2022 Israel Experience. Join us in this Holy Land adventure from April 24th to May 2nd, 2022 with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Latha Gainesville Phil Calloway, special musical guest Laura Hastings, and the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team. Tour the Holy Land, walk where Jesus Paul David walked, sail the Sea of Galilee, visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, David's Royal Palace, and experience communion together at the Garden Tomb. A traveler from our last experience shared, the trip was overwhelmingly wonderful, the trip of a lifetime. The full Israel Experience itinerary is available online, and to ensure an intimate vacation experience, numbers are limited, so register soon. For more information, call one 800 6632425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca